0: Good morning. I desperately want to serve you this morning, so let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, sanctify us now in your truth. Your word is truth. Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your beautiful word. And what we know not, please teach us. And what we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. All for the glory and praise of your dearly beloved Son, who lives with you and who reigns with you, together with the Holy Spirit, one God forever blessed and forever praised. Amen. What if the main goal of your life? What if the one thing that you're living for, the chief end that you're aiming for, what if that turns out to be an unmitigated disaster? A few years ago, the Tampa Bay Times ran a story about a couple named Tanner Broadwell and Nikki Walsh. The couple sold everything they had in Colorado. They bought a 28-foot sailboat in Alabama That was their first misstep right there. Amen. (laughs) Then they headed out to sea. They were sailing for Key West. They had one goal. They had one aim. They had one ultimate priority. Which was this. They wanted to live the rest of their lives together. Sailing the Caribbean. But that dream quickly turned into a nightmare. Only one day into their new excursion, their new life on the high seas. Their ship ran aground, sank in less than 20 minutes, and they lost everything. It's not true. They, they had three things. They said, number one, they had a cell phone, their social security cards, and their little pug, Remy. This is what Broadwell told reporters. Quote, I sold everything I had to do this, and now I lost everything in a matter of 20 minutes. I lost everything I owned. I woke up today and had everything, and now I have nothing. Now what about you? What's your ultimate priority? What are you living for? What are you aiming for in life? Christian, a wonderful way for us to discover our true priorities is to examine our prayers. Christian, our prayers reveal our priorities. What we pray for is what we're living for. Last week we considered some of the holy convictions of the Apostle Paul as revealed in Ephesians chapter 3. And this morning, we get to look at another one of Paul's prayers for another church, this time the church in Philippi. And we get to ask, what, what were the priorities in prayer of the Apostle Paul? What can we learn from his prayer priorities? And how might we align our prayer priorities with his? So if you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Philippians, we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 down to verse 11. If you've never read a Bible before, you can find this on page 980. And we're going to be looking at big number 11, that's the chapter number, and then the sentence numbers, those little numbers, little number 3 down to 11. And as you turn there, some of you have read Philippians before, you know that this is an epistle of joy because Paul is speaking about joy all the way through this letter. And you know that in Acts 16, the apostle founded this church through the preaching of the gospel. And this was the city of Philippi. It was a Roman colony. And so Paul is writing this letter back to the church that he helped start there in Philippi. And it's about 10 years after the church began, after the church was planted. And just like Ephesians, Paul is writing this most likely from Rome, from his imprisonment there. So this is one of his so-called prison epistles. So this is about 60, 62 A.D. Paul's writing from house arrest to this church that he dearly loves. Now the reason he's writing this letter, it's really threefold. One, it's to to thank them for sending a generous gift to him while he's in prison. Two... He he wanted to let them know how he's doing. And three, Paul was giving them some counsel because there was trouble brewing in this church in Philippi. There was some disunity in this congregation. In fact, there were specifically two women, Euodia and Syntyche, who were not living in harmony together in the Lord, and their disagreement was causing a rift in the church. We know this from chapter 4, verse 2. And so Paul is writing this letter to help them understand, as a church, how to have the mind of Christ that helps us pursue unity through humility for the sake of the furtherance of the gospel. And for all this to happen, what does Paul do at the beginning of his letter? He prays. This is his prayer. Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this. Before we go to the supper at the end of our service together, I want to draw your attention this morning to three prayer priorities revealed in this passage by the Apostle Paul. Three prayer priorities that will help UBC pursue unity through humility for the furtherance of the gospel. So the first one I want you to see in verses three to six, this is point number one. If you're a note taker, here it is. Point number one, pray for growth in gratitude. Pray for growth in gratitude, verses three to six. In verses three to six, Paul expresses joyful gratitude for the church in Philippi. Look at verse three again. So don't look at me, look at your Bibles. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making my prayer with joy. Now, why is Paul thanking God for the Philippians? He gives two reasons. First reason, he thanks God for the devoted partnership of the Philippians. Look there what he says in verse 5. I thank my God, verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel, from the first day until now, the Philippians were devoted partners with Paul for the sake of the gospel. And he thanks God for that. You remember from the very moment, from the moment the gospel came to that, those, 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 those saints in Philippi, when they were born again, you remember that story in Acts 16 with Lydia, the folks meeting down by the river praying. From that very moment, they were partnering with Paul in the gospel. And there's also not just this this ministry partnership, there's a relational partnership. They deeply love and care for Paul. They love him relationally and this expresses itself by their financial support of Paul. So they they, they actually give to support his gospel ministry. If you have your Bibles, just flip over to chapter 4 verse 15 for a second. Look at chapter 4 verse 15. This word partnership, it shows up again in chapter 4 verse 15. Paul says, And you Philippians, you yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, there's that language from the first day, right? When I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. So they were... They were were partners in the gospel. And so Paul gives thanks to God for that. But there's another amazing reason that he's giving thanks to God for the Philippians. It's right there in verse 6. It's for their divine preservation. Their divine preservation. Now, you may not memorize the Bible much. This is a verse you want to memorize. Philippians 1.6. Paul says, I thank my God. And then he gives another reason in verse 6. Being sure or being certain of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Amen. Paul thanks God that he began a good work in the Philippians and that he's going to carry them all the way to the end. He's going to carry them all the way to the day of Christ, the day when Christ returns that the God who began a good work in them of salvation will finish that work in them. God always finishes what he starts. He always finishes what he starts. Now, back in 2018, some of you may remember this story. It went viral. There was this incredible video of an American tourist who went hang gliding for the first time. Maybe you remember this. He was vacationing in Switzerland, and here's what happened next from an article. Quote, Chris Gursky, I love that name, Chris Gursky of Florida took off from a 4,000-foot mountain along with his hang gliding pilot. It was a stunning day, the sun illuminating the dazzling panoramas of the Alps. There was only one problem. Gursky Wasn't strapped in because the hang gliding instructor forgot to secure his harness. Now, college students, if some of you ever have summer jobs as hang gliding instructors, note to self, hook the person in before you jump off the mountain. Okay, just that's free. That's not in the notes. For the next two and a half minutes, for the next two and a half minutes. The pilot is frantically trying to land the hang glider. Gursky is holding on with one hand for dear life. He dangled thousands of feet in the air, holding to the hang gliding bar. And amazingly, after two terrifying minutes, they were able to land, and he only suffered minor injuries. But the best part of the article is what he said. After all this ordeal, this was his quote. Quote, I didn't really enjoy my first flight on a hang glider. <laughs> Amen. And he went on to say, I held on for my life. I just kept Holding on. Brothers and sisters, be grateful to God this morning that your eternal destiny does not hang on the strength of you holding on to Christ, but on his holding on to you. Thank God this morning that we hold fast to Christ because he holds fast to us. He began a good work in us, and he will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Praise God that he's not like me. I have a honey-do list a mile long, and I rarely get my house projects done. You can ask Allison afterwards. I start projects, but I don't finish them. But God's not like that. He always finishes What he starts. So, Christian, be encouraged this morning. You're a work in progress. You are working. This church is a work in progress. There's lots of stuff that God hasn't finished in us yet. But take heart, he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Salvation is begun by sovereign grace. Chapter 1, verse 6. And it is finished by sovereign grace. And so we sing. We sing. At the end of our service, we will sing. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him with such a cost. He will what? He will hold me fast. Christ was obedient in our place. To the point of death, even death on a cross. And on that cross where the prince of glory died, he said, it is finished. And if Christ finished his work for us, he will certainly finish his work in us. The prince of glory who said it is finished on Calvary will never leave anything undone for his beloved bride. Christian it is not your hold of Christ that saves you it is Christ it is not your joy in Christ that saves you it is Christ it is not the strength of your faith that saves you it is Christ it is Christ from beginning to end he is the beginning and the middle and the end of our salvation so for every look at yourself, Christian, take 10 looks at Jesus. And that's what Paul is doing in this opening prayer. He wants the, 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 the church in Philippi to know that we have everything if we have Christ. And so he gives thanks to God this morning. And as a church, OUBC, we need to be thankful and grateful that as a church, the eternal God is our dwelling place. And underneath us, we rest on his everlasting arms. So let me just ask this question. Why? Why does Paul begin the letter with this tone of thanksgiving? Why does he do that? You don't, When you read the New Testament, you don't need to be, just ask, what does it say? You need to ask, what is the writer or the author doing? What is Paul doing? Why does he start with thanksgiving? If Paul was a musician, if this was a piece of music, why is maestro Paul starting with this key of gratitude? Real short answer, here's the reason why. Because there's unity problems in Philippi. And that unity problem we know from later in the letter stems in part from grumbling. Paul's going to say in chapter 2, verse 14, do all things without what? Grumbling or complaining. You see, brothers and sisters, grumbling and complaining burns like acid through the unity of the church. And so Paul wants to begin this letter by pointing out evidences of grace in the church in Philippi. And he wants to set this tone of gratitude for them to emulate and to follow. And so, brothers and sisters, if if we're going to shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, you know what we can do? We can pursue growth in gratitude. We can be a church that is known far and wide by our thanksgiving to God. We can put to death by the Spirit the sin of grumbling and complaining. Last week we talked about praying big prayers. One of the things we can pray for as a church is that we grow to become experts at seeing evidences of grace all around us. You realize we are so used to sin. It's so easy to see sin. We're foreign to grace it's hard to see grace. And so pray, pray that God the Spirit would so open our eyes that we would see evidences of his gracious work in our midst. And that we would give God glory for it. And thank him for it. So that's the first thing. That's the first point. It's the biggest point. The rest of them are a lot faster, I promise. Verses 7 to 8, Paul, as he's reflecting on how grateful to God he is for the Philippians, he then transitions to spell out even more deeply his great affection for them. And that leads us to our second point. Number two, don't just pray for gratitude, for growth and gratitude. Number two, pray for growth in affection. Pray for growth in affection. Verses 7 to 8. Look again at verses 7 to 8. You can see that Paul dearly cares for this congregation. Verse seven, I hold you where? In my heart. Verse eight, I I long for you, notice, with the affection of Christ. Now to understand what's going on here, I think the main word you need to understand is right there in verse seven. It's an infinitive, you see it? The ESV renders it to feel. It's right for me to feel. If you're reading the Christian Standard Bible, or the Legacy Standard Bible, it renders this phrase as to think, to think. That's helpful because the rest of the letter, Paul's gonna use this word 10 times. And he uses it to describe the kind of mindset that he wants the Philippians to have. So for example, chapter two, verse five, Paul says to them, he commands them, have this mind in yourselves, same verb, This mind in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. And so Paul commands in chapter 2 what he prays about and talks about in chapter 1. And so in other words, Paul wants the Philippians to grow in this mindset of having a deep affection for one another. Paul loves the church at Philippi. Chapter 4, verse 1, flip over there. I want you to see this, chapter four, verse one. Paul says, my brothers and sisters, listen, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Paul feels this way and he thinks this way about the Philippians and he wants them to follow his example. Because he understands that a church that is growing in gratitude and a church that's growing in affection for one another is a church that will remain united for the furtherance of the gospel. Now, some of, I'm looking at you. Some of you are doubting this. So I want to persuade you. You're like, I'm not buying this. Okay, I want you to buy it. Here, I'm going to give you some Bible. Flip down to chapter 2, verse 1. Notice what word shows up again. Philippians chapter two, verse one. this, This lets us know we're on the right track. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, then notice this word, any what? All right, one person saw it. Any what? Affection, you see it? And sympathy, same word. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being full accord and of one mind. You see, Paul sees having affection for one another in the church as an essential ingredient for being unified in the gospel. And so that's what he's exemplifying here in the first chapter and he's wanting us to pray for this for ourselves. Now, I wonder if you've heard this before. Have you ever heard people say that you know I love, I'm supposed to love the people in the church, but I just don't like them? Maybe maybe I'm the only one that people tell me that too. Hey, Nick, we love you, but we don't like you. I don't know. It's just me. When someone says, you know, we're supposed to love one another, but we don't really need to like each other, I want to push back on that because that's not the way Jesus loves us. It's not the way Jesus loves us. Verse 8, Paul says that, My God is my witness how I yearn for you all, notice, with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul understands his affection for the Philippians to be the affection that Jesus has for them. It's astounding. So let's pray for this. Let's pray that when we aren't gathered together, which is six days a week, for the corporate gathering, that we actually miss each other. Let's pray that we actually have such affection for one another that we can't wait to see one another. That we actually don't just love one another, but we actually like each other. Pray that. Get a membership directory. There's a lot of people in here that need to be prayed for. Praise God for this. Get one after the service. Use this as a prayer guide throughout the week. I guarantee you, if every single one of us prayed through one page of the directory every morning, we would start liking each other more. We have this misguided notion that Jesus loves us, but He doesn't really like us. We think of Jesus as, you know, He loves us, that's His day job. But like after hours, he didn't want to spend time with us because he didn't really like us. That's like a husband saying, you know, I love my wife. I just don't want to really like her. Jesus isn't that kind of husband. Jesus loved the church and he gave himself up for her. And Jesus loves us today with all of his infinite heart. Thomas Goodwin, one of my favorite dead pastors, said this about Jesus. Christ is love covered over with flesh. Christ loves you. He loves life into you. He loves you all the way to the end. And Christian, he will love you into eternity. And in eternity, you will spend eternity with him in his presence because he loves you. Friend, you may be hearing me Speak about the love of Christ this morning. And you, be, you might be thinking, if you only knew what I have been through or what I am currently going through, you have absolutely no idea the ways that I've been wronged and mistreated. And maybe, friend, you think that your life and what you've experienced disproves The love of Christ. Friend. I want to humbly suggest. That you're looking at this all wrong. Your life doesn't disprove. The love of Christ. The affection of Christ. His life proves it. His life proves it. He lived a life of love. For you. For all the times we have all failed to love him and to love our neighbor as ourselves. For all the times we have sought our own way like sheep and gone astray. As a good shepherd, he loved us and he went to the cross fully obedient in our place. And he died the death we deserved. And he rose again on the third day. And he offers himself, he offers his spotless righteousness to anyone who would humble themselves by receiving him in the empty hands of faith. Friend, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, maybe you came here because a friend invited you. We're delighted that you're here. More than anything in the world, we want to introduce you to Christ he is alive today he is ruling and reigning he is working all things together for the good of his people and so this morning the thing that you can apply from this passage is to run by faith to Christ to receive him by grace through faith in him alone and if you have questions about what that means you can talk to me afterwards I'll be trying to stand at the back door You can talk to anyone around you about what it means to come to know the affection of Christ Jesus. That brings us, brothers and sisters, to our final point. You see there in verses 9 to 11, you might be thinking, wait a second, I thought we were just going to talk about prayer. Here it is, 9 to 11. It's the last thing Paul focuses our attention on. And what we're to see in verses 9 to 11 is we ought to pray for growth in love. We ought to pray for growth in love, verses 9 to 11. I love how Paul's love and affection for the Philippians just spills over into prayer for them. And that's a little clue. That's a little clue. J.C. Ryle once said, he loves me best who loves me best. In his prayers. Just as parents, one of the ways we can love our kids is by providing for them, but you can love them best by loving them in your prayers. Paul prays for growth and love. You look at there, verse 9 to 11, it's a, it's a run on sentence. Paul would have failed English. He, he has so many run on sentences, but it's, it's three parts. It's easy to understand the structure of verses 9 to 11. There's a request, verse 9. There's a purpose, verse 10. There's a a final result, verse 11. So let's take these one at a time. What's the request? He prays that the Philippians' love, notice, would abound. Your Bible may say grow or your Bible may say increase. Paul wants the Philippians' love to abound more and more, to keep growing and growing and growing and growing. That's what he's praying to whom is this love directed? Is it love to God, love to Paul, love to neighbor, love to one another? It's all of those. He doesn't specify, it's love for all, right? And notice there, there's a certain kind of love that he wants. Verse nine, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more, notice this phrase, with knowledge and all discernment, or with knowledge and depth of insight. Now, maybe you've heard it said before that love is blind. Have you heard that before? Love is blind? Paul disagrees. Paul disagrees. The kind of love Paul prays for is not blind. It doesn't have a blindfold on. The kind of love Paul prays for is an informed love. It's a love that's shaped by knowledge and by discernment. It's a love that knows and discerns and distinguishes. In our Christian discipleship, we will sometimes separate head from heart. You hear people say that? I know it in my head. I don't know it in my heart. We separate what we think and what we feel. And what Paul wants to do in this prayer is to connect that. Sometimes churches can slip into like an either-or paradigm. You can either be the church that's marked by love or you can be the church that's marked by knowledge. You can be a church that's marked by loving people in a shallow way or you can be marked by a church that reads lots of books. And Paul says, how about both? (laughs) Knowledge, discernment, love together. That's what Paul's praying for. Why is he praying this? Verse 10, he tells us why. Here's the purpose, so that you may approve what is excellent. So again, follow Paul's logic. Paul is praying for a growing love that is knowledgeable and discerning that will help the Philippians decide and distinguish what is excellent. That is, what is superior. Now, there are many times, we know this, friends, that life gives us a choice and it's, it's right or wrong, it's, it's good or evil, it's very clear. But so many times in our lives, brothers and sisters, we have countless decisions that aren't straightforward. We need, we need this, we need what Paul is praying. We need a growing love that is increasingly formed by knowledge and discernment friend maybe you're not a follower of Jesus Christ and you remember a song in the 1980s that said listen to your heart remember that song it was not only a bad heart it was not only a bad song it's horrible advice amen listen to your heart it's like using a broken compass our loves are disordered We love the wrong things in the wrong way and we even love the right things in the wrong way because we love lesser things above superior things. Our hearts are broken compasses. And so we need God to grow our love and to form it with knowledge and discernment. Friend, if your heart isn't guided by God's knowledge and the discernment that he gives, you will love the wrong things. And that's part of the wonder and the glory of the new covenant. He gives us new hearts and he gives us his word and by his spirit we begin to love the things he calls us to love in an ordered way. Now, what's the result of all of this prayer? He tells us the result there in verse 10. Love is growing in knowledge and discernment so we can approve what is excellent. And here's the result. So, or as a result, to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, verse 10 and then verse 11, having been filled with all the fruits of righteousness that come through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So Paul looks to the end, to the last day, to the second coming of Christ. And he prays that this love will abound more and more in the Philippian church. That they'll be shaped by knowledge and discernment. They'll be able to approve the superior, excellent thing. So that they will be pure and blameless when Christ returns. That they will be filled with all the fruit of righteousness that comes only through trusting in Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That's what Paul is praying for. Let me ask you one application point from this. Here it is. Brothers and sisters, do you pray today in light of that day? Do you pray today in light of the last day when Christ comes? Do your prayers have a shelf life we have this bread that we get that we really like. It's delicious bread and it lasts like two days. Some of our prayers are like that. Do your prayers stretch from today into eternity? Paul's does. Paul's prayer goes from that day all the way to the second coming of Christ. Paul's taking a view all the way to when Christ returns. Now, brothers and sisters, I am so thankful for this congregation. I am so thankful for the evidences of grace that I see in my two months of being here. So many of you have prayed for me and for my family. Ed, the the, the folks who are meeting on Wednesday nights, At the Sunday night prayer meeting, thank you. I thank God for you. I thank God for your prayers. And what Paul wants to do is he wants all of us to say, praise God. Let's excel still more. Let's pray that we we have so many folks coming out to prayer that we have to start having the service here on Wednesday and on Sunday night. Brothers and sisters, by God's grace, let's continue to pray for one another. Big prayers. Prayers that stretch from today all the way to that last day when Jesus Christ will return. When he will come and transform the body of our lowliness into conformity with the body of his glory. By the power that he has even to submit all things to himself. Brothers and sisters, let's pray as a church that we would become pure and blameless and filled up with all the fruits of righteousness that come only through Jesus Christ, all for the glory and praise of God. Brothers and sisters, he will be our God and our guide, even unto death. In Christ, our lives are not headed for an unmitigated disaster. They're headed for eternal joy. And on that last day, the work that Christ Jesus began in you will be brought to completion. He will bring it to completion. And he will meet us, and he will receive us, and he will present us to himself in radiant splendor. And we shall be near him, and we shall be with him, and we shall be made like him. And we shall be with him forever. Our faith will finally become sight, and our prayers will finally become praise. That is what Paul is aiming for. That is what Paul was living for. That is what Paul was looking for. Are you?